Good morning. My name is Pastor Matt, and we are going to get an opportunity to dig into God's Word together in just a moment. So if you have a Bible, uh, I encourage you to open up to Psalm 32, Psalm 32. I'm not really keeping track, but this is like 7th, 8th online service. Are we that many at this point? Which uh, it's been a blessing to have the technology to do this, but uh, many of us are looking forward to the day when we can um, sit in some of these seats together and herald the king. Uh, I just encourage, my, I had to even encourage myself in this last song to remember that when we sing, we want to direct our attention and our affections to the Lord. And sometimes I even get caught in the music and I'm singing the words, but it's not an expression of worship. And um, I'm assuming that some of you are experiencing those challenges at home because you're thinking about worshiping and you look over and be like, oh yeah, I was going to paint that wall last month. And uh, just, I pray that maybe God would even just, uh, just anoint your home, uh, the place where you're able to worship, that God would meet you there. Uh, that's my prayer even now, that as we open up God's word, that God would meet us um, We are still learning about prayer and how to approach God using the Psalms. Uh, The Psalms are in the center of your Bible. It's a collection of 150 uh, poems, uh, structured verses that are directed as prayers to God. And so I'm going to read Psalm 32. Like I did last week, I'm going to ask wherever you are to stand for the reading of God's Word uh, as a way to honor the Word, but also... Uh, just to give ourselves some uh, some uh, focus on these words. So let me read Psalm 32 to you. It says there that it is. this is a psalm of David, a maskil. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all who are upright in heart. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let me pray. Father, would you allow these words to uh, teach us what it means to approach you in confession, but also in praise Uh, for the God who uh, hears the confession of sin of his people and forgives and blesses and restores and renews. We ask this for Christ's sake and in his name. Amen. 
So uh, during the quarantine, uh, I'm getting a little sick of e-books, so I've been looking on books on my shelf that have been given to me or that I've purchased over the years that I should like, actually read these things. Uh, and one of the books that I started reading in quarantine is this book called Worship Walk by Gareth Goosen, which happens to be Pastor Gary's favorite book. And there's, a, there's an account in this book that really struck me in preparation for today. And uh, it's, it's a story that Gareth Goosen tells about himself. He begins this story by saying, I once ministered in a Spanish-English congregation in Archambault, Ohio, where I had been invited to present a Friday and Saturday worship seminar and then to preach on Sunday morning. He says, as we worshiped Sunday morning, God began to work in my heart. First, he brought conviction upon my heart regarding a lie I had told to the pastor and his wife. I preferred to see it as making the story richer. But now, here in the worship service, God brought it up, and he wanted me to confess it. I knew God was right, so I told him that I would talk to the pastor and his wife and confess it to them immediately following the service. But the Holy Spirit replied, No, I want you to confess it openly before the congregation before you preach. Gareth Goosen says, I really did not want to go there. Then he says, the worship singing ended. Moderator stood to introduce the guest speaker. Quote, a man of God has already blessed us with his teaching and ministry with the worship teams this weekend. What an honor it is to have you here this morning to speak the word of God to us. Man, did he have to say that? After an introduction like that, how was I to openly confess that this man of God was a liar? I thought, now would be a great time to come back, Jesus. I did not want to confess that morning. I did not want to speak either. I would have loved to find a hole to crawl into, but no hole appeared. And by the grace of God, I obeyed. It seems that God teaches us humility best. Through, humil through humiliation. But then he goes on to say that through that sermon, through the preaching and the sharing and his own confession, God seemed to do a, a work in the people listening that morning. And he concludes the, the, the scenario with this. He says, It continues to humble me when I think that my own confession of sin opened the doors for God to speak in that hour. Out of the rubble of a lie, God accomplished his purposes. But how much more frightening to think of how many times I miss the opportunity to bring God's personal message for a group of people because I am not listening, or my sin and focus on myself is blocking God's voice. It's interesting that God attaches a blessing to the forgiven person. God brings sorrow on the one who refuses to confess. But Gareth Goosen, in this story, he tasted God's blessing and he even saw his power in the confession of sin. He is like millions of others who have refused to hold on to their sin. Now those who know uh, 
Those who know that their shame and guilt are gone are extremely powerful forces for good. The, those who have been forgiven forgive. Those who know reconciliation with God can reconcile with others. But the absence of forgiveness is a sad place, a place of cursedness, judgment, and death. For many reasons, we resist God and cling to our deadly addictions, but some find light. And Psalm 32 provides a lot of light with dealing with real guilt, finding real forgiveness before the real God. I need the truths that are baked into Psalm 32. We need the truths of Psalm 32. If you look here in verse 1, uh, even before verse 1, our English translations, they, they actually refer to this as a, as a maskil. It's a, it's a little footnote that you find in most of the Psalms. Uh, those footnotes were in the original uh, Hebrew translation that we have. These are included as inspired word of Scripture. Uh, a maskil is often a prayer that is to encourage meditation and reflection. It's, it's wisdom from God derived by walking with God. And this is David's collected wisdom with walking with God, now presented to the congregation of God's people to say, sing with me, pray with me, know the God that I know. And his main piece of wisdom for our meditation is this, blessed is the soul who reconciles with God in time. Blessed is the soul that reconciles with God in time. I want to take this uh, psalm kind of in two parts, and this uh, kind of theme in two parts. The first idea is that reconciliation process, and then part two will be finding reconciliation in time. So part one, blessed is the one who reconciles with God. So that leads to, I think, three questions. What is reconciliation? Why is reconciliation necessary? And how is reconciliation possible? First, what is reconciliation? Like a simple definition of reconciliation is just bringing two parties that were at odds back into friendly relations. It's moving from disharmony to harmony. It's a return to a right relationship after a breach. It's little Joey confessing to Sister Susie that he stole her candy and he seeks her forgiveness. It's a wife confessing her adultery to her husband and seeking his grace. But Psalm 32 is about a broken relation between God and a, and a human. And if you look at verses 1 and 2, David uses four different Hebrew words to describe the relational back, um, breakdown. So look at verse 1. A couple of terms that David uses to describe the broken relationship. Uh, first, he, he refers to transgressions. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. So what is a transgression? Well, a transgression is willful rebellion. It's knowingly crossing a moral line. Then it says, it speaks of sins, the bottom half of verse 1. And sin refers to an offense against the superior, something that brings guilt and requires punishment. Verse 2, in my translation, uses the word sin again, but most translations identify this as actually a different Hebrew word, and it often translated the word iniquity. And iniquity is, a, is an offense that's, that's crooked or, 
or morally ugly. And then the final term, he speaks about deceit. And deceit speaks a level, speaks like a, a level of, of tre- treachery or certainly ethical slackness. And this is where David's relationship stood with God. He was rebellious, guilty, crooked, and marked by treachery. Think of the moral outrage that we saw 10 years ago or so when Bernie Madoff was discovered as being a total crook. So he was this financial advisor, and he had billions of dollars and uh, thousands of people invested in his supposed financial savvy. But it turns out he was a, a huckster. He was doing this big Ponzi scheme. And in doing so, he ruined businesses, jobs, people's retirements, and the livelihoods of many. Bernie was rebellious, guilty, crooked, and marked by treachery. Now, most of us, though, we only see the human side of this evil. But David is pulling the curtain and saying, no, 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 this is what happens when you sin against God. Our actions violate God's goodness. Our iniquity separates us from God. We're rebellious, guilty, crooked, and marked by treachery against God. Which leads to this second question. Why then is reconciliation necessary? And we, we get a little idea on its necessity for, in verses 3 and 4 when he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through gro- my groaning all day long, For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David describes what happens when you're disconnected from God. Our lives begin to fall apart. Our our souls ache. We lack integrity. And a disintegrated person is not worth much. It's, It's what happens to married couples when there's discord and disharmony. A fight breaks out in the morning, and then they try to go through the rest of their day, but they're disintegrated. They can't think. They can't focus. They can't do anything. They're just like, oh, (laughs) we need to get made right. And if it persists, right, and resentment becomes part of the environment of a home, like you can't even be in the same room making a sandwich sandwich without there being this kind of like you're walking on eggshells, and it just doesn't feel right. And David is just describing, that was happening with his relationship with God. His heart was you know, not doing well. His bones were wasting away. He felt like all of his energy was sapped. This is what happens when you lose touch with your creator. But there's more at stake than our feelings. Because don't forget the status that was described in verses 1 and 2. Rebellious, guilty, crooked, and marked by treachery. We're not at odds just with God relationally, which is bad and discouraging and disheartening. We're at at odds with God legally. In the justice system of heaven, we're condemned. Think about this. Like, we all know that lying to a drunk, drug-dealing bum feels less morally wrong than lying to, like, a kind and patient elementary school teacher. Something about the stature, position, and character of a person raises our senses to the wrongness attached, even if the actual incorrect behavior is the same. But this is what makes sin against God so heinous. God has the highest position, the most moral goodness. 
most perfect character, and thus transgressions against him are infinitely rebellious. Sins against him incur infinite guilt. Iniquity before the God who is absolutely pure exposes even the more uglier uh, of our, our, our crookedness. Our deceits before the one who is wholly true reveal our hellish trajectory. And this is why God talks about uh, there being a curse on those who sin against him. And those who are cursed will face judgment and death and hell. Being at odds with God relationally and legally is a horrible place to be. And this is why reconciliation is so necessary. So how? How is it possible to reconcile with God? And we come to this glorious verse, verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now what David is doing is he's describing the human side of reconciliation. And the way to be reconciled at the human level is this full and honest confession. But I want us just to take one step back and realize, what did David know about God that he was willing to confess? What did he think about God's character? Like, if you have a jerk of a boss who's cruel and mean and you mess up, the last thing in your mind is, I'm going to go tell him the mistake I made yesterday. But if you have a kind, forbearing boss who has given you multiple second chances, if, if you screw up, you come to the boss the next day, you're like, I did it again, and I'm sorry. David knows the character of God. He sees, he sees a God who's gracious and forgiving. He would know the stories of the Old Testament of God being faithful to patriarchs that were, were less than morally perfect. He would know the stories of God's saving the people out of Egypt through no work or moral goodness of their own. He would remember when the people of Israel rebelled against God and worshiped before idols and God remained their God and stayed with him. He would know the sacrificial system that had been set up so that people could deal with their sin. David knew enough about God to come with a full and honest confession. Flash forward to us, right, 3,000 years after David, 2,000 years after the ministry of Jesus Christ, we know that we have a forgiving God. A God who so loved the world that he gave his son to make it possible to be reconciled. So there is a human side to this reconciliation process, but know that the backdrop of the human response is what God has done. His character, his love, his mercy, his provision. And so how do we get reconciled on our end? We come with a full and honest confession. And there's three parts to this confession that David gives us. Three parts, our role in being reconciled with God. The first is, we own up to the sinfulness of sin. We own up to the sinful sin, sinfulness of sin. Notice in verse 5, he basically repeats all of the same terms he had used in verses 1 and 2. He's admitting sin, iniquity, and transgression. And he's doing it openly and honestly without deceit. Now, owning up is more than just acknowledging bad behavior. 
It's more than saying, I'm sorry. It's a personal agreement with God that my thoughts and deeds were wrong, full of guilt, and deserving of judgment. Owning up to sin knows that from forgiveness from God requires repentance. What is repentance? Repentance involves a, a change of mind, a, a, an understanding of what is right and wrong, and you're, you're admitting your wrongness and wanting to turn to the right way. It, but it's not just knowing, it's, it's feeling the wrongness. And then it's acting with the will to turn from the wrong thing. Owning up the sinfulness of our sin requires repentance. C.S. Lewis puts this well in uh, his book, The Problem of Pain, when he writes, the demand that God should forgive such a man while he remains what he is is based on a confusion between condoning and forgiving. To condone an evil is simply to ignore it, to treat it as if it were good. But forgiveness needs to be accepted as well as offered if it is to be complete. And a man who admits no guilt, can accept no forgiveness. So I own up to the sinfulness of my sin. I own up to the guilt and I cry out for forgiveness. A full and honest confession owns up to the sinfulness of sin. But there's more. What does a full and honest confession have? Part two. A full and honest confession refuses to cover up the details or the depth of the evil. Notice what it says there in verse 5. I did not cover up my iniquity. He makes no excuses. He's not shading the truth. He's making known the cold, brutal ugliness and evil of his behavior. When I was 16, I thought it would be funny to drive with my head out the driver's side window. I'd seen it in a movie. It looked funny. While I was doing it, my peers that were in the same restaurant parking lot, they thought it was funny. But when I hit a pole in the A&W parking lot in Indianola, Iowa, everyone's, well, I stopped laughing. <laughs> but the worst part wasn't hitting the pole. The worst part was having to tell my dad what I did. He wanted to know why I did it. He wanted to know what motivated me to do it. How I, he wanted me to come to the realization of the foolishness of my behavior, the lack of regard I had for the value of the car, the person who had bought it, which wasn't me at that time. Similarly with God, we come with our tails between our legs for sure, but we should come with a readiness to not cover up the details. Here it is, in all of its ugliness, God. This is what motivated me. This is why I did it. This is what I believed was true that wasn't true. This is the action that followed that wrong belief. And here it is, God. I don't cover up my iniquity. The third aspect of a full and honest confession, is a declaration of my rebellion before the good God. So again, confession isn't just saying what I've done is wrong. It's declaring that God is good. His ways are good. His commands are good. His wisdom is good. 
And when I've gone outside of his will and dishonored his character, I'm the erring party before the perfect king. It's interesting where it says, uh, the second part of verse 5, it says, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. That word confess is often translated praise. It's the most common Hebrew word for praise. When we're confessing sin, we're confessing my wrongness, it should at the same time be a praise of his goodness. It's an admission of the contrast. He, he is love. He is worthy. I am in desperate need. Praise to the God who gives grace, but I am a candidate for such grace. You know, one pastor equated confession to how insurance policies works. Uh, for instance, a few weeks ago, uh, my car and my house took some hail damage. And what the adjusters do is they come out and they assess the damage. They walk around the property. They, they even use flashlights to look for uh, you know, dents in the siding. Now, this is all to your advantage when you have an insurance policy. The more thorough the damage that is documented, the more money that will come from your insurance policy. And confession works similarly. When we come confessing fully the dishonor we've enacted against God, and we confess the sinfulness of sin, he responds with equal forgiveness or over-the-top over forgiveness. What doesn't get disclosed doesn't get forgiven. Now, when I say that, I don't mean like you need to be like consciously aware of every misdeed, you know, that you like you have to have a notebook or type it into your smartphone, like the nature of every sin throughout the day. That's not what I'm talking about. What I mean is, if you're holding on to sin or you're clinging to guilt or deceiving yourself that you're fine, there's no path for you to find forgiveness. You're alone in your sin and guilt. And so, friends, let's Come to God with nothing less than full disclosure. The blood of Jesus is strong enough to cleanse the foulest sinner. And the cleansed soul is a happy soul, a blessed soul. Confess your sins and do not cover up your iniquity. That's the first part of this psalm. Blessed is the soul who reconciles with God. But let's look at the second part. Blessed is the soul who reconciles with God in time. Again, remember, this is a poetic prayer for our meditation and application. David wants us to listen and then to act. And so the first part of this psalm is David remembering a time of deep cleansing from God. And now the second part here is the encouragement to any who will listen to seek God while he may be found. David is like a friend who knows about the sweet deal at Old Navy's that, closes, that, that it stops at 8 p.m. on Sunday night, and they call you on you know, it's Sunday at 4 in the afternoon, like, you've got to get there. The jeans are sweet. You know, two pairs for 20 bucks. Whoa, really? You know? Now, obviously, the consequences are much steeper than missing out on a pair of cheap blue jeans. Blessed is the soul who reconciles with God in time. Let me make two uh, kind of uh, observations on the issue of in time. The first idea of being reconciled in time has the idea of, the idea of you know, being reconciled before it's too late. You get that in verse 6. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. 
Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. David is saying, I have found this safe place in God's forgiveness and love. In the, in the storm of guilt and judgment, he's been brought safely into protective covering by God. And he says, there's time for you, but not forever. Let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. God has not given an unlimited amount of time to get right with him. God doesn't give us an unlimited amount of chances to be right with him. Today may be your last chance. Death will certainly be your final chance. For Hebrews 9.27 says it's destined for every human person to die once and then face judgment. But today the door is open. As long as it's called today, we can turn to God. I spent some time thinking this week, why do we sometimes, or why do we often refuse to come to God? Why do we stick to our guns? Why do we refuse to confess? And so I was thinking, just the idea that like everyone, like we all really kind of wear our sin on our chest, whether we really want to admit it or not. Like it's there. And so why don't we come? Well, first, many of us don't come because we think we can clean ourselves up. Like we don't need the cleaning of Jesus you know, maybe we give some money to some good causes and we can kind of lighten the stain or um, maybe if we live in moderate homes or drive moderate cars, that'll kind of wipe some of it off. Maybe if we recycle. Maybe if we go to a good evangelical church or a good liberal church or no church, then we'll be good enough. That'll, that'll wipe some of it away. But if, if we're not trying to clean ourselves up, what we, what we may do is just compare ourselves to others. And so we go, you know, I might have this much sin, but that guy, I mean, his sin is way big. Like, I, I'm not that kind of person. You know, I don't live in a penthouse. I don't subscribe to penthouse. I haven't been to prison. Uh, I'm not a religious hypocrite. I'm not an anti-religious bu- bully. You know, folks like that, they got a chance of going to heaven. I'll be fine. I'm good enough. It's interesting. There's a kind of a religious scholar slash skeptic uh, out in North Carolina named Bart Ehrman. And he actually recently wrote a book on hell. Um, what was so interesting about Bart Ehrman's book is he pretty much denies that you can trust the Bible. Don't, can't trust the Bible. And then he comes to the issue of hell, and he says, well, certainly hell can't be true, and God probably not. But if there is a God, everybody's going to heaven. Because comparably speaking, you know, we're all okay compared to everybody else. So we, so we clean, clean, try to clean ourselves up. Maybe we compare ourselves to others. And then the last thing is we do is we just kind of cover it up. You know, we're like, I'm not that bad. figure out some way to cover up the shame and guilt. Maybe cover up for others, but a lot of times we're just covering up for ourselves. We distract ourselves with technological gadgets, movies, and hobbies. Sometimes we might feel the sense of shame or guilt, but we chalk that up to you know, some sort of psychological issue caused by my mother when I was four. 
if we gave a thorough if we gave thorough attention to our hearts in our past, we might be inclined to look for help. And so we, we try to press on and give our mind to other matters. But Psalm 32 is a bucket of cold water on our head, saying, seek the Lord while he may be found. We lose so much by comparing or covering or trying to clean ourselves up. Be reconciled to God before it's too late. Blessed is the soul who is reconciled with God in time. Let me, let me just give a second idea of being reconciled to God in time. And what I mean by that is, I mean in time, in the moment, in now, daily, day by day, moment by moment, being reconciled to God. And the idea is, we don't have to wait for a priest to confess. We don't have to wait till, wait till evening prayer or morning prayer or till Sunday morning. Like right now, the Bible says, through Jesus Christ, we can approach God and say, this is what's going on in my life. This is the mess that I've made of it. This is the sin in my soul. And the Bible says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and purify us of all unrighteousness. And then we then have fellowship with God. We are walking in the light now, not later. And that's kind of what David is pleading there in, in verses 8 to the end. He's saying, I want to instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I want to counsel you. And then he warns, don't be like a mule or a horse. It has to be controlled by a bridle. Like, don't be a stubborn animal. Verse 10, because many are the woes of the wicked. There's many woes when we stay in rebellion. But the Lord's unfailing love, his relentless steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in him. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my goodness. I'm not trusting in my power. I'm trusting in him, and I'm surrounded. And then the response in verse 11, then we'll rejoice. We'll be glad. We'll sing. I've taken, you know, one of the things I think is interesting is maybe when you're new in your Christian faith or if you're a non-Christian, when the first time you go to church and you see all these people that you see during the week who look normal, but on Sunday morning, they're like crying out to God in song. It's weird. You're like, who does that? I mean, are we, are we in a musical all of a sudden? But the reason people do that is because they've been touched. And, the, and they, they have to respond with a melody. David wants us to realize life with God can be rich. But if we stick our heels in the ground like a stubborn mule, woes will follow our way. In this very time, in this very moment, through the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ, we can be right with God. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to cover up. We don't have to compare ourselves to others. We can just come like David did. And he said in verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is good news. You know, before I close, I, I, wanna, I want to let you listen to some life events that happened in the life of one of the attenders of our church named Ethan Ford. And, and maybe his stories will connect with you today. Here's, here's Ethan Ford. Good morning, Southern Cornerstone Church. As Matt said, my name is Ethan Ford, and I'm married to Heidi. We have been attending Cornerstone for about a year and a half now. Matt reached out to me and asked if I would share some of my personal experiences in going to God for forgiveness. I can think of three times specifically that I went to God with my guilt. 
of sin and experience God's unfailing love and forgiveness. The first experience I want to share with all of you is when I first accepted God as my Lord and Savior. In the fall of 2015, I attended a conference with the Navigators, the college ministry group that Heidi and I are going on staff with. Going into that conference, I was carrying a lot of baggage in my heart. The previous year, I was struggling with the heavy depression and cope with that depression with drinking and engaging on unhealthy relationships with females. I remember the Saturday night session very well. I saw many students praying together, crying together, worshiping God together. I knew I wanted to let go of my guilt and shame that I felt for so long and kept a secret. I went to a person on staff and opened up about my past struggles for the first time and told him I wanted to ask, uh, ask for God for forgiveness, but was unsure how to do that. The staff led me in prayer as I gave my life to God that night. What I felt as I asked God to ask God for to forgive me was freedom from all the guilt and shame I carried for years. I felt God's love overwhelm me, and I immediately joined the other students in worshiping God for forgiving me. I did not deserve his forgiveness, but he graciously gave it to me as a son who he loves. The second example of forgiveness I want to share um, happened a couple of years later at another conference during the Navigators. I was attending a men's retreat, and I was acknowledging for the first time all the sexual sin I struggled with for years. I kept it a secret out of fear and lies that I was the only one who struggled with sexual sin. As I told a friend of mine of my struggles, he encouraged me to go to the Lord and confess and ask for forgiveness. Remembering the forgiveness the Lord showed me a couple of years ago at that fall conference, I went to God with tears in my eyes. I wept as I spoke with God about my struggles and repented. Mainly, I felt God's unfailing love wash over me. I worship God along with my other brothers in Christ who confessed similar struggles. We praised him and sang his glorious name. The last example I wish to share with you guys is one that I experience every day. Heidi and I have been married for seven months. And one lesson I have learned is I have to go to Heidi and ask for forgiveness every day when I mess up. I don't do this perfectly, but I am trying to grow in this. This reminds me I must go to God every day and ask for his forgiveness. As he forgives me, I praise him and worship him. I know he does not see me as a burden, but desire that desires me as his son to come to him with all my sins and ask for forgiveness. Just like the first time I asked for forgiveness, God forgives me every time. Thank you, Cornerstone, for listening. I look forward to seeing all of you very soon. Over 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine spoke of two sorts of confession, and Ethan described them very well. One confession ties what Augustine called the great forgiveness, or the need for the great forgiveness, and the other confession deals with the sins of daily infirmity. The great forgiveness refers to a person's first step toward walking with God. This is for those of you who aren't sure if you're a Christian if you become a disciple of Jesus, it requires this first step of the great forgiveness. So this is when you come, you admit that you've lived for yourself, the world, and the devil. It's a realization that the great sin was not letting God be the God of every aspect of your life. It's a realization you need to be totally changed from the inside out. And the great forgiveness makes us born again. 
The great forgiveness reconciles us to God the Father, unites us to God the Son. We're made alive by God the Holy Spirit. The great forgiveness is quickly followed by the, the, the symbol of baptism to symbolize the, the washing, renewal, and the new life that God gives through the great forgiveness. The great forgiveness brings us you into the church. The great forgiveness means you've quit living for yourself and you have dedicated everything to Jesus. If you need the great forgiveness today, you cry out to God, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is the starting point for every person who seeks to follow Jesus. But even after we have this fresh start, even after the great wave of the, of the great forgiveness, we need daily confession to deal with our daily infirmities. Daily confession deals with sins such as the desire to be noticed, the desire to be wanted, the, the shading of truth to make ourselves look better, the impatience we feel toward family and coworkers. In, in, in getting stuff done, for our addictions to food and technology, for our lack of prayer, for our anxious thoughts, for our bitterness, for our cruel words, our self-promotion, and add to that our adulteries, murders, and thieving and the like. We need God's forgiveness through our daily infirmities. Something might still be holding you back. Let me share one final story about what God does through this wise path of reconciliation and forgiveness. The story comes from the opening pages of what's, what's known as the big book. If you're unfamiliar with the big book, this is the foundational text for Alcoholics Anonymous. In the opening pages, Bill Wilson describes his alcohol-filled life. Bill writes about a lifestyle of binge drinking, and one day he finally broke down and confessed his need for God and forgiveness. These are his words. There I humbly offered myself to God, as I think I understood him, to do with me as he would. I placed myself unreservedly under his care and direction. I admitted for the first time that of myself I was nothing, that without him I was lost. I ruthlessly faced me and my sins and became willing to have my newfound friend take them away root and branch. I have not had a drink since. Blessed is the soul who reconciles with God in time. Father, thank you for the gift of forgiveness purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. He has redeemed us by his blood, and all who come to him in faith can be forgiven in time, here and now, and forever. Thanks be to God for this marvelous gift. Amen.